After first service, I was talking to a friend who is really suffering and really not much to be said other than just sit with her. And then as I was sitting there and she had tears coming down her face, a little curly-headed two-year-old who neither one of us knew walked over and just put her hands on my friend, said, pointed, she had a little necklace and pointed to the hearts on her dress. And, you know, it was a great picture really of, of um, life because uh, I, I can look around and know stories of just people who are suffering. And, and then at the same time, there's, there's always stories of joy. And if you're suffering, it can, it can be challenging to not look around and go, what's wrong with these people? Why don't they know? Aren't they aware? Life is hard. Suffering is real. And then if you're in joy, it's hard to think about anything other than just the joy you feel. And so the Bible says, rejoice with those who rejoice and mourn with those who mourn. And, and those things run on twin tracks in the church. And so if, you, if you're suffering, you can look around sometimes and think, these people are fakers. You know, they, they're not for real. If they were, they would, they would be aware of how life, how hard life is. But, you know, I know, I don't know everybody in the room, and a lot of people in the room, and nobody in here is faking. They're just, life runs on twin tracks. Always does. So, any, any um, where's Hattie and Eva? There you are, right here in the front row. Who, how many sixth graders are in here? Speaking of twin tracks, raise your hand really high. Look, one, two, three, four, five, six. The reason why I'm asking is because seven, thanks. Because this is their first time in here from downstairs. They've graduated or they've got demoted into where they have to listen to me. <laughs> and, um, and so they've been up there learning the gospel and their language, and now they're in that transitional stage where they've got to, they're going to learn the gospel in, in our language. And so we're glad you guys are here. And, um, and you guys, your lives, your guys, like all the rest of us, they run on twin tracks. You know, you've got sorrow and joy. So Gary Morrison is a professor of humanities at Northwestern University. He's an expert on, on Russian literature and, and not on Mr. Rogers, but I really like Mr. Rogers. And, um, but I'll tell you more about that. And I listened to an interview with him that was fascinating. He talked about the Russian Revolution at the beginning of the 20th century. It was driven by the ideology of Marx that was implemented by Lenin and Stalin. And the official policy was terror. And Lenin was clear about this. When he was writing the first Soviet law code, he said, we don't treat mass terror as something we did just during the Civil War. It is to be a permanent feature of our regime. And the result was a kind of hell on earth. Terror with no real end in mind other than to create chaos. So children turned in their parents who were taken to the gulag or taken to death. Secret police arresting secret police. Neighbors turning on neighbors. Stalin had 90% of his admirals and generals arrested and killed. And just foolish stuff just to create chaos. And it's one of the reasons why Hitler um, overwhelmed him first. Um, because he just didn't have any leadership. Arrest by quota. The country just went mad. I was in Russia not long after the Iron Curtain fell, and you could still feel and see the, the fear in the, air. You could, in the air. You could see it on citizens' eye, in eyes. And it wasn't paranoia. Paranoia is unjustified fear. Their fear was justified. Stalin killed around 60 million of his own people, including through 
what was called the Holdemore or Death by Hunger in Ukraine in 1930 and 31. And millions were forced-starved. So they were growing food in the breadbasket of the Soviet Union, and they were sometimes killed if they ate the food they were growing that was being sent to the, herb, to the cities. It was also called the terror famine. Everything was about ruling through terror. One man who survived the terror famine wrote, if only we had been slaves under Pharaoh in Egypt. So he was envying the slaves in Egypt. He said they had families. They ate and they didn't work at 50 below zero. So human beings were cogs in a wheel of an ideology which at its core was atheism. And Stalin would give toast to the cogs. And there have been cogs, humans, cogs in the machine. And there have been many times in places where governments have killed their own people. But it was at least in token fashion they would say we don't kill people unless we have to. Lenin and Stalin wouldn't tolerate that kind of talk because any hint that human life matters, even if you were trying to economize who you killed, was rejected because people are material objects and to say or to think otherwise is to take a religious view. The Soviet Union was founded on radical materialism. Any hint that human life is sacred had to be eliminated. Humans were machines. They have no souls, no ultimate value, and a cog in a machine has no transcendent value. It is utilitarian. If it's broken or unneeded, you toss it. Lenin and Stalin were evil creatures. But for all they were wrong about, which was almost everything, they were not wrong about this. To believe that humans are more than material objects is a religious view. Human life matters since God exists. If God does not exist, there is no good reason to believe that human life matters. Oxford chemistry professor Peter Atkins wrote recently, believing in human purpose is inspired only by sentiment, by emotion. If God's directing human history, human history has meaning. If he is not, it does not. And there's no way around this. I've said it over and over in the epistles, we talk, as we've gone through the epistles, everything matters and nothing does. And since God is alive and involved, whatever you do, whatever, whether in word or deed, Paul wrote, do it all to the glory of God. Since God began history, God is directing history, God will bring history's conclusion, it has purpose. Our part in it has purpose. So love for God, love for others matters. Love of coffee or planting flowers or a sunset matters. And if there is no God, whatever you think you're feeling or experiencing, love, joy, purpose, meaning, it's illusion. It all matters if God's alive and involved. None of it matters if he doesn't. So we're in 2 Peter 3 today and next week. Let me read verse 1. This is now the second letter I'm writing to you, beloved. In both of them, I'm stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder. So in the last chapter, Peter was really hard on the sellers of heresy. And now he's back to talking to and encouraging the faithful. Three times in this chapter, he calls them beloved or dear friends. He didn't use a lot of friendly terms in the last chapter, if you were here last week. And it's not because he's a hard-headed or hard-hearted guy. He's a shepherd. Truth matters, and that which is not true, if believed and lived, destroys lives. Ask those who lived through the terror famine. He's not telling them anything new here. He's reminding them of important old truth. And we more frequently need to be reminded than informed. When someone tells me they have a book with some new spiritual truth, I'm not interested. I don't need a new gee whiz truth. I need ongoing new passion for old truth. Now, I love reading books where an author creatively presents old truth in fresh ways, but when it comes to scriptural truth, if it's brand new, it's not true. And so biblical truth told over and over is what we need to be reminded of. 
In Peter's writing, he said to stir up their sincere minds by way of reminder. This is Pastor Peter communicating confidence in his friends. He's saying, you got this. He's talking about the people last week who minds have been polluted. He said they, they live like animals of instincts. He said, but that's not you. That's not how your minds are working. Your minds are sincere. Not meaning perfect, but meaning you're not playing at this. You're for real about this. He says, let me remind you, let me stir up your sincere minds of what you know and believe. The ones who needed to be rebuked, the ones with the insincere minds, the ones who were playing at this, they weren't reading his letter, they didn't care. The ones who were listening and cared, they didn't need to be rebuked, they needed to be encouraged. And I dare say that most everyone in this room is more in need of encouragement than rebuke. We're here because we want to be, unless you were like me who was made to be here until I was 18. But that's another story. If you're, and, and eventually, by the time I was 19, I loved being here. The Lord got a hold of my heart. But most of us are here because we want to be here. And we want to be here because we want to grow in love for God and others. None of us are perfect, but we're training for godliness and becoming more like Christ over time. So we gather week after week to be reminded, to have our hearts and minds stirred up again by the truth. We don't need smoke and mirrors to get emotionally charged. Emotions are great. But we really don't need a burst of feelings that doesn't last past lunch. We need truth. We need it week after week, day after day, shaping us. And truth shapes us in the image of Christ. This process is mostly incremental, very incremental, bit by bit over a long period of time. Now, there are occasional experiences in a Christian's life where you can grow more rapidly. Those are almost always times of suffering. So if you want to take a great leap forward in faith and depth of love for God for others, it's probably not going to be at a conference, a night of worship, even a revival. Those things are fine. Those are a part of the incremental process. The big leaps forward are almost always times of suffering. For the most part, growth is incremental. And when you think about that, you say, well, I'll take the incremental growth. You can keep the big leaps forward. What was the content of this stirring up their minds? Let me read. That you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior through your apostles. Knowing this, first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. They will say, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, that means they died, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. For they deliberately overlooked this fact that the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God. And that by means of these, the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. But by the same word, the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. He's reminding them that the Lord Jesus will return someday. In the meantime, scoffers will scoff. So, Dogs go wolf, cat goes mal. What does the scoffer say? <laughs> you know, so if you don't have kids or grandkids, you have no idea what I'm talking about, but they understand. They scoff. Cats meow, scoffers scoff. It's what they do, but it's because of who they are. And to scoff is to speak in a derisive or mocking way. So Paul doesn't just say that people will scoff, but that there are scoffers, which is a certain kind of formed character. And what these people do is scoff. They are mockers. There's a, mockers are a category of fool in Proverbs. In, in, in Proverbs, there's, there's different levels of folly. And mockers is one category of fool. So we can all, at times, kind of devolve into, into scoffing, but we're not all scoffers. 
Just like every man struggles with getting angry, but not every man is an angry man. And so this specific kind of person with a heart that's misshapen by pride, they scoff at the things of God because truth is inconvenient to them. The truth rebukes their lifestyles, and instead of repenting and living in the freedom of truth, they attack the truth and they convince others to try to join them. I read once where a university scientist said, evolution is impossible, but I believe it anyway because the alternative is unacceptable to me. And it turns out that he was a very immoral man, and he chose immorality over truth. So his problem with God was moral, not intellectual. And Peter's reminding his readers of the reality of the return of Christ, and this passage reminds us that thinking about the return of Christ and the end of this present age is meant to be largely a morality, character-shaping reality, some item of intellectual or theological curiosity. And I've known churches and people who have fought and even split over different ideas about the timing of the return of Christ. So they fought each other over a truth that's meant to shape character into Christ-likeness. I once had a man tell me I was a scoffer, not because I doubted the return of Christ, but because I doubted the author of a ridiculous book that was entitled 88 Reasons Why Christ Will Turn in 88. The title alone is dumb enough to give you pause. (laughs) This man apologized in 1989. So the scoffers were, Peter said, following their own sinful desires. The idea of ultimate accountability was inconvenient for their lifestyles. And by the way, if you're really interested in end times and the impact of your interests doesn't positively change how you treat people around you right now and your interest in the end times doesn't leave you more comforted and with less fear of the future, then you're entirely missing the point. So they scoff because years have passed and Christ hasn't returned. And Peter writes, well, they're overlooking the fact that there was a long time between creation and flood. The people at that time scoffed at the idea of judgment. Day after day, the earth turned, the sun rose and set, no change, no flood, no judgment, then the flood happened. And Peter writes, people scoff because the days come and go and nothing happens, so nothing will happen. Atheists most often believe in what's called a uniformity of cause and effect in a closed system. It's a fancy way of saying the universe is a giant clock that keeps time, but there is no clockmaker. There's nothing outside the, the cosmos. There are certain laws of science in place, and if there was no uniformity of cause and effect, then science and life would be impossible. The medicine that heals you today kills you tomorrow. It's a dice roll. Our plane flies today, tomorrow, Things change, aerodynamics change, and planes fall from the sky. That's a uniformity of cause and effect. That's how God has made the world. But closed system just means the physical cosmos is all there is. There is no supernatural, no clockmaker. Now, the irony is if, if it was a closed system, we would only know that if someone outside the system told us so, in which case it wouldn't be closed. So how do we know this room is all there is unless someone came from outside the room and told us, in which case this room would not be all there is? It's exactly what happened. Jesus entered the world as God incarnate. What he taught and did demonstrated that he's Lord of everything and that there is more than just a physical cosmos. We do live in a a universe that's uniform in cause and effect. Normally things happen normally because that's how God made the world, but it's not a closed system. God exists independent of it. He created it. He owns it. And so when Jesus enters space and time in the incarnation, he tells us what's real and true. He knows When he tells us he'll return, not as Savior, but as judge, bringing justice, he must be believed. 
And the scoffers scoff then and now, not because they have certain facts in their favor, but because they don't want this to be true. It hampers their life choices. I'm not saying every unbelieving person is an unbeliever because they want to be immoral. I don't think that's always true. It is true for some. It was true for the ones Peter was addressing. But I do believe that every unbeliever has to deny not just the world around them, but their own hearts, what their own hearts are telling them. Paul says as much in Romans 1 and 2. So Peter uses scripture to address the scoffers and uses two main points, one related to God's eternal nature, the other his enduring love. Do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promises, some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. So he quoted Psalm 90, verse 4, one day is like a thousand years to God. And what we regard as a long time is nothing to him. God is eternal. He exists independent of space and time. So if we were to say to God, why are, what are you waiting for? It's been a long time. It's 2,000 plus years from God's perspective. Now it's been a couple of days. God is a being of eternal nature, and he's a being of enduring love. He's not slow. As some think of slowness, he's patient. He's intentional not wanting any to perish. At that point, some people have reasoned, well, if he's waiting for more to repent and more are being born every year and more are dying without repenting, how does the math work out? Well, it's not a math equation. It's God's sovereign plan. And the way I think about this is I am thrilled that Christ didn't return in 1957. I enjoy existing. I look forward to eternity with Christ. It's not a math problem. It's a trust issue. Peter's been saying in his letters, the Lord is eternal, he's loving. I'm an eyewitness to his glory. I can speak personally of who he is. Don't be thrown off by the scoffers. They don't have a case. God's eternal and God is loving. Your faith's on solid ground. Now, if you remember back this summer, press on, suffer well, be faithful. Because the fact is, just as there was a first coming, there'll be a second one. So the Bible starts within the beginning That very phrase indicates a coming end. Human history is a story with a beginning, a middle, and an end. And the end was written before the beginning happened. And the end will come when it comes. We're not to speculate on it. We're not to fear it. What Peter intended, it's all the way through 1 and 2 Peter, was that truth would lead to missional action. That it wouldn't freeze people up looking at that time charge, but it would, it, would, it would empower them for evangelism. Tell the gospel to people God has put in your lives. Verse 10, But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. So the idea of the Lord's return being like a thief is that it's going to be sudden and unexpected. But it need not be. That when the Lord talked about coming like a thief, he was saying, If you're unprepared for the coming of a criminal, then it's disastrous. So be prepared. Not by knowing when it's going to happen, but by living prepared. So how are we to live prepared? End time calendars and charts. Read the news looking for the Antichrist. Stockpile food and guns. No, stop guessing. Peter tells us, since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people in lives of holiness and godliness. So since the cosmos in its current state will come to an end, what kind of people ought you to be and how you live your life? And specifically, you're to live lives of holiness and godliness. And these two words together are shorthand 
for the great commandment. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. It's shorthand for love God, love people. It's always the case in the New Testament that the reality of the end has moral implications. The return of Christ should lead us to becoming more like Christ. Thinking about the end, how the Lord controls the end, it ought to lead to godly confidence in the face of terrible headlines. We should not be gripped with fear when we read the news, or if we are, we should turn to God in faith. It should grip us with sadness, surely, but, but hope. It should lead to hope in the face of personal suffering. Not easy suffering. Peter said, don't be surprised at the painful trial you're suffering as if something strange were happening to you. But rejoice that you suffer, you, you share in the sufferings of Christ. Not easy suffering, but hopeful, not hopeless suffering. And above all, it should lead to long-term faithfulness in our lives. 1 Corinthians 15 is an entire chapter about the resurrection of the body. It's a very dense, theologically dense, difficult chapter. But the last verse... 1558 is, therefore, with all this, all this stuff that's going to happen, stand firm, let nothing move you. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord because you know your labor in the Lord is never in vain. So again, faithful action follows real future vision. NASA scientists say our sun is halfway through its lifespan. So we only got about 5 billion years left. And then it's going to expand into a red giant and gobble up Mercury, Venus, and Earth. Atheist philosophers love to put humans in their place by telling us stuff like that, and then they follow on with, in the future, your life will be forgotten as a meaning, meaningless blip that it is. I told you my favorite poem before, Stephen Crane. He said, a man said to the universe, sir, I exist. The universe replied, that fact has not created a sense of obligation in me. In other words, I don't care. Nothing you do matters ultimately, Nothing you, no one you love means anything. Ultimately, the cosmos doesn't care. How is that for infusing people with a sense of meaning and a reason to live a life of moral excellence? You mean nothing. Now go live a thriving life. And there are three inscriptions that were found on three different tombstones from antiquity, and they describe three different philosophies of believing human histories without meaning. One tombstone expressed hedonism, which is do what you want with your body, and it read this, I was nothing, I am nothing, so thou who art still alive, eat, drink, and be merry. So the conclusion is, nothing matters in the end, so do whatever you want. Surefire way to ruin your life. One tombstone expresses apathy. Once I had no existence, now I have none. I'm not aware of it, it does not concern me. It's on a tombstone, like nothing. And the guy, the guy to tell him, I want this on my tombstone when I'm dead. One tombstone expresses despair. What is below? Deep darkness. But what are the paths upward? All a lie. Then we are lost. History has a beginning and an end and is directed by God. What happens, what we do matters. So Peter wrote, since there'll be an end of the cosmos, what kind of people ought you to be? This is Peter's way of saying what matters most at the end matters most now. And if contemplating the end of all things and the end of your life is done rightly, Psalm 90 verse 12 says, the result is wisdom. Increased love for God and others, better ethical moral choices, a missional life. The stupid stuff really becomes the stupid stuff. And the important stuff becomes the important stuff. Contemplating the end of all things ought to allow you to enjoy the delight of a smell, coffee, flour, rain, because it matters. 
the delight of a child as you're suffering who touches your arm. It matters. Even the suffering that you're likely to endure in your final death, it matters. The universe is said to be a uniformity of cause and effect in a closed system. The cosmos is like a giant watch that ticks away in predictable fashion, and this giant watch is all there is. Now, I don't know, maybe I'm not the smartest guy in the world, maybe I should ask these sixth graders here, but if you saw a watch laying in the street, laying there, I mean a really cool watch, perfectly designed, keeping perfect time, you would never think, oh, it just happened. What you would think, two things, you'd think somebody made that and it belongs to somebody, right? That's what you would think. And that'd be a, a good conclusion. The universe is infinitely more complex than a watch. It's been designed by God. It belongs to him. Since we're a part of the universe, we are his possession. God made the cosmos. It's not a closed system. He can intervene in any way, anytime he chooses. And we call these miracles. Miracles are not contrary to science. Science is an attempt to understand the world as it is. The world is uniform in cause and effect, but it's not a closed system. God exists. The supernatural is real. This is a scientific fact. And the greatest intervention into the universe was the incarnation. God became man and dwelt among us. And the same Lord Jesus will return someday. This is a settled fact. So Peter's saying, don't be fooled by the steady ticking of the cosmic clock. Sure, things go pretty much the same day after day because that's how God designed things to work. But in his time, he'll intervene again. You can count on it. So I'm going to finish by reading Psalm 90. It's a psalm Peter quoted from. He quoted 90 verse 4, and I like to quote 90 verse 12 where I get what matters most to him matters most now. It's a prayer of Moses, and, and just think for a second about what he had seen and experienced in his life. And this prayer sort of encapsulizes his life. And he wrote this prayer. i got to assume that he prayed it over and over. It encapsulizes the things he saw in Egypt and the things he saw in the wilderness and the things he saw as he failed God and then God restored him. So I'm going to close by, um, by praying Moses' prayer. So join me. Lord, you've been our dwelling place throughout all generations. Before the mountains were born or you brought forth the earth and the world from everlasting to everlasting, you were God. You turn men and women back to dust, saying, Return to dust, O sons of men. For a thousand years in your sight are like a day that's just gone by or like a watch in the night. You sweep people away in the sleep of death. They're like the new grass of the morning, though in the morning it springs up new, by evening it's dry and withered. We are consumed by your anger and terrified by your indignation. You set our iniquities before you, our secret sins, in the light of your presence. All our days pass away under your wrath. We finish our years with a moan. The length of our days is 70 years or 80 if we have the strength. Yet their span is but trouble and sorrow. For they quickly pass and fly away. Who knows the power of your anger? Your wrath is as great as the fear that's due you. Teach us to number our days aright that we'll gain a heart of wisdom. Relent, O Lord, how long will it be? Have compassion on your servants. Satisfy us in the morning with your unfailing love, that we may sing for joy and be glad all of our days. Make us glad for as many days as you have afflicted us, for as many years as we have seen trouble. 
May your deeds be shown to your servants, your splendor to your children. May the favor of the Lord our God rest upon us. Establish the work of our hands for us. Yes, establish the work of our hands. 